Well, howdy, Hootah Thunkers. This is the uh, host of the Hootah Thunker podcast, Zeb, coming at you, episode 171, titled Cards. Simply cards. What kind of cards? We'll find out in a minute. Before we get to that, let's talk about the recommendation segment where I recommend to you, my Hootah Thunkers, uh, something that I've checked out myself, something I'm interested in, I'm looking forward to checking out, um, usually a title, book, movie, show, something like that. Sometimes it does tie into the main event um, of the episode. Today it does not. This week it does not. This week I recommend Princess Mononoke. Um, it's an anime, my favorite anime, but I can't help but think I just recently recommended this Studio Ghibli cat classic, so I will recommend a few more. I just, I don't know, it's... It's on my mind a lot. It's one of my favorite movies. It's it's just that I finally saw Princess Mononoke in theaters due to the fandom events. It was by far the best viewing I have experienced of my favorite anime movie. Princess Mononoke is one of the most awe-inspiring things I have ever watched. I get emotional sometimes when I think about it. I whistle the theme song frequently, and I will forever it will forever hold a, a special place in my heart. But... I recommend this too often. So <laughs> I would also like to recommend Knock at the Cabin Door by M. Night Shyamalan. Shannon and I just watched this the other day. We rented, we borrowed the DVD for free from our library and then came home, found out it's on HBO Max. But I don't know, something about using a DVD, you could look at the deleted scenes, you could look at the commentary, the making of, stuff like that, fun stuff, alternate endings. And so we watch it on, on DVD via my PS5. Was this M. Night Shyamalan's best movie? No, it wasn't. Was it a perfect movie? No, it had flaws for sure. But it did get me to think about it days after watching it. And that is, in my opinion, one of the best qualities a movie can have. And that is also something M. Night Shyamalan always delivers he's had some amazing movies um if you've watched some of the ones about um oh i'm blanking on it right now about the superhero stuff it had um samuel jackson and it had bruce willis um those were those were awesome split that movie split was so good everyone knows about the the sixth sense um also with bruce willis wait that wasn't bruce willis who was in that yeah, Bruce Willis. Um, those movies are great, but he also has a lot of movies that weren't commercial successes. They weren't even critical successes. Um, there's The Lady in the Water. My mom and I love that movie. Did not do well in box office. The critics didn't think it was great, but I liked it. It was such a cool and very unique, original idea. And um, he's had some other ones that are kind of weird. There's, <laughs> But anyway, he always gets you to think about stuff. It's always a cool concept that's an original idea, which... Really, Hollywood needs that right now. Even if they're kind of low-budget, dinky movies or whatever, M. Night Shyamalan, he always delivers something to get you to wrap your head around. Here's the plot. While vacationing at a remote cabin in the woods, a young girl and her parents are taken hostage by four armed strangers who demand they make an unthinkable choice to avert the apocalypse. Confused, scared, and with limited access to the outside world, the family must decide what they believe before all is lost. Pretty vague, and the trailers were pretty vague, um, but that's that's the point. It's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. You can't give away too much without watching it. If you want to watch it, you got to get the twist and everything. M. Night Shyamalan's always got twists or something going on. Um, I think Dave Batista, he's one of the main characters. He's one of the people who breaks into the, the cabin. He did a wonderful job at acting. Some critics that tear this movie to pieces say it's, oh, it's crap, it's boring, it's shoddy writing they praise batista for his work in this movie and i think he, he deserves it he he's played drax in guardians of the galaxy that's probably his biggest role um but he's played some other things as well and he's always played either 
you know, it's, it's pretty easy to play. I think it's pretty easy to play Drax. He's very literal. He, you know, it's, he, he shows little emotion, but he does it well. He's also played bad guys a lot in movies. Well, in this one, he's kind of good, bad, something. I don't know. He brings so much to this movie, and you got to check it out. And I finally, you know, I wanted to recommend not just two titles this week, but a third, the short film from 2020, Opal. Like Knock at the Cabin Door, this is a scary one. But unlike Knock at the Cabin Door, it does not waste any time. It's a short film. My biggest critique about Knock at the Cabin Door is that it drags on too long. It could have been half as long as it was. Opal doesn't do that. It's 13 minutes long. <laughs> Where my other two recommendations were relatively well known with big marketing budgets like Knock at the Cabin Door and cult followings like Studio Ghibli uh, for Princess Mononoke, Opal was pretty much an unknown gem. You can watch it now on HBO Max, but I will warn you, it is effing terrifying. At least I think so. The basic description is a curious girl investigates the cries she hears coming from a forbidden house across the street. Pretty left open. You don't know what that means. This one does have, you know, some twisty kind of stuff, and I don't want to ruin it, even though it's 13 minutes. You it's quite the story. Jack Stauber, he directed it and he did all the voices. He sang every song in this 13 minute short movie. The claymation, it's a style of animation I typically shy away from. Freaks me out. Claymation, not my favorite thing. I know it has a lot of history with the old King Kong was claymation, all that stuff. I just don't like claymation. It's not my thing. But it's what makes this movie truly horrifying, and I couldn't see it being done any other way. So sometimes claymation does find its its niche. Um, another another other form. There are I don't like all forms of movies. I don't like puppets. They freak me out. Claymation I think is too blocky, even when it's done like really well. Um, another exception of claymation I like is Kubo and the Three Strings or Two Strings. Can't remember how many strings, but Kubo this is such a good movie. Um, but yeah, mostly I don't like claymation. This movie, Opal, wonderful. <laughs> the claymation, I think, since it's always made me kind of feel eerily and, and kind of weird and I don't like claymation, it freaks me out. For it to be used in a horror setting, genius. It's perfect for me because it's already kind of freaks me out. When you're trying to freak me out, it does it so much better. So love it. And yeah, I don't like puppets either. <laughs> I love I know Mr. I live in Pittsburgh now have for years and Mr. Rogers is the biggest thing. Never watched as a kid because the puppets always freaked me out. Couldn't get past it. But <laughs> anyway, so those are my three recommendations for the week. Princess Mononoke, A Knock at the Cabin Door by M. Night Shyamalan and Opal, Jack Stauber's Opal. Um, and that last one is really one that you probably wouldn't hear of other than this, I'm going to say, because it's pretty rare. It did get some nominations. Now for the main event cards. What kind of cards am I talking about? We're getting into it. I've been going to and hosting poker games since I was just a kid. I can vividly remember the first time my buddy's stepdad, Mark, brought us to a living room poker night, you know, back, you know, it's not an official casino or anything. Some may say that was bad parenting skills to take some preteens to a poker game consisting of smokers and beer guzzlers. But my buddy's stepdad was a solid guy. He had his faults, but taking care of kids, of us kids, was not one of them. I think he was such a cool dad, and, and I'm glad my buddy had a cool stepdad like that. I think because he carefully treated us like adults on occasion seriously helped us grow into men. But I digress. We're talking about the poker here. There, you know, there was one of those old TVs with a wooden frame in this poker place. They were watching the Baltimore Oriole game through the broadcasting fuzz and airborne Marlboro smoke. It's like I said, it's a vivid picture. It's one of my favorite memories. That day I was taught how to play Texas Hold'em, and I never forgot how cool it felt playing. I was horrible but because <laughs> I was a kid, but it was. It was so cool. So that's why 
this past weekend while I was con con while I contemplated a good topic to cover this week's episode, I thought about the standard 52 deck of cards that we used that day playing poker with my buddy's stepdad, Mark. The very same deck of cards my friends and father-in-law play on about once a month in our own living room poker games, and the same deck used by thousands of casinos all over the world. The same deck is used by cheap and pro magicians, the same deck that is shuffled by old ladies day in and day out so they can beat their fellow old lady friends in their retirement homes. It's used, it's so popular, this deck. And I was like, wait a minute, I've never heard anything about the history of this stuff, but it's got to be. You know, there's kings, there's queens, there's jacks, there's aces. Where did it come from? Who decided the the the, the black and the, and the red, the color? Who decided the four suits? How did this come up? How did the design? Why is this particular deck of cards so popular? Where did it come from? Why are there kings, queens, jacks, jokers? Well, um, we're going to talk about that today. And the main source of today's episode, PlayingCardDecks.com, writes, a good intro, playing cards have undergone a radical transformation since their first beginning several centuries ago. Our modern playing cards evolved into a deck of 52 cards with the four suits in red and black and with two jokers by making a journey that took hundreds of years and involved traveling through many countries. In fact, the most significant elements that shape today's decks were produced by the different cultures and countries that played cards traveled through in order to get to the present day. So there's lots of different countries and cultures contributed to this. Mainly what we're going to be talking about today is the European culture because the other stuff, uh, we'll get into it. Cards are typically made from paper, right? It's a pretty flimsy material that doesn't last long. So there's a, there is not much of an archaeological record about playing cards. Think about it. Archaeologists usually find bones because the flesh and all that stuff goes away. Um, we find um, cuneiform tablets because they were made in clay or, or etched into stone. We don't find many scrolls because, well, paper disintegrates pretty fast. So the true history of it, it's a bit shoddy. Most historians believe cards originated from the East, likely in Asia, as far back as 1000 AD, coming from the same time as tile games like dominoes and mahjong. Pretty good idea. Um, pretty good uh, theory, I would say. Mahjong and uh, dominoes are coming out. Why not cards too? Makes sense. Eh, we'll put it in there. We do have hard historical evidence of playing cards in Europe dating back to the 1300s and 1400s. So there are at least that they are at least that old. We know, like I said, concrete evidence that they're from the, the 13th and 1400s cards existed. But where did they come from? It seems that they came from the East. Not sure. That's the stuff. But today we're talking about the hard evidence stuff. Uh, one of the very first hard evidence about playing cards, a Swiss monk dude named Johannes wrote a manuscript in 1377 that briefly mentioned some playing cards and a list of few different games he knew could be played with them. So there was multiple games being played by 1377. That's why they think, you know, it could be even early 1300s if they had multiple games that even a monk would know how to play. Ironically, some of the best evidence, uh, earlier evidence of playing cards from this era came it comes from religious sermons that denounce gambling as a sin, which I find funny. <laughs> if you're really into cards, you want to know about the history about cards. Some of the best evidence is people saying that they're bad for you. <laughs> they point to cards and, and dice as some of the worst offenders. These religious sermons are the reason we know the 52 card deck was used at least as early as the 1400s. So I like the irony of that. Now, some of the first countries um, to really bring about, about cards where we first start to see evidence of it, the 
is Italy and Spain. The suit and signs in the first European decks of the 14th century were swords, clubs, cups, and coins, and very likely had their own origin um, had their origin in Italy. They were referred to as the Latin suits. Italy, Latin, that's where it came from. The court cards uh, from the late 14th century decks in Italy typically included a mounted king, a seated and crowned queen, plus a knave. Knaves are kind of like little servants. Um, they're like royal servants, although the character could also represent a prince and would later be called a jack to avoid confusion with the king. So that's where the jack comes from, the knave. At first, cards were expensive to make and therefore reserved for Europe's upper class. They were hand-painted and looked really cool. Um, like I said, because they're made out of paper, not many of these exist at all today. We don't even know what they look like, but we know that's how they talked about them. They're hand-painted, really expensive. But soon the plebs, us peasants, began to make their own versions in a much more efficient way. This led to the popularity of cards spreading across all social classes in Italian and Spanish societies. And eventually card games' popularity uh, began to spread across borders. The soldier class is typically seen as the class responsible for spreading cards all across Europe. Think about it. They bring something to entertain themselves while out on military campaigns. They leave them, they share them with the enemy or whatever, the local townspeople. Um, so that's, we, we do see some, like the printing and distribution of cards, why I went from one country to the other, but we don't know why they spread all over the place. They think the soldiers did it a lot. When cards made it to Germany, that notorious German engineering made the fad spread like wildfire. The Germans got to work printing cards like mad, but not just on that flimsy paper. They printed cards on wood and even copper, which I think that would be so cool to use copper cards, hearing it like clink as you lay down your hand or whatever. That would be neat. Um, I don't know about wood. I guess wood would be cool, but I feel like it would fall apart a lot easier. But the Germans didn't just print cards as the Italians and Spaniards. They put their own artistic flair on them. Their own suits uh, were acorns, leaves, hearts, and bells. They reflected the German rural way of life. You know, lots of farmers in Germany. A throwback to a recent episode of Who to Thunk It, one German suit was that of the hawk bells to show the Germans' people's interest in falconry. I just did an episode, uh, I think it was like three episodes back, on modern falconry. I guess it was big in Germany in the 1400s. Then cards make their way to France, or the French <laughs> that's when French came into the picture. The French contribution to playing cards is most notably the current suits we use today, hearts, spades, diamonds, and clubs. They're the ones that sort of put that all together, but they translate it to cur, piques, caro, and trefles. Um, now, we'll get into how that translated differently to the hearts, spades, diamonds, and clubs. The second most notable contribution to the French was to break up the suits into two different colors. So this is the first time we see the black and the red. Sometimes people think it's day and night. Other think it's the ink that was used. Maybe black and, and red were the easiest to see and probably the cheapest ink around. The French also made their suit symbols more simplistic and therefore easier to stencil onto cards, where the Italian, Spanish, and even German suits had beautifully intricate suit symbols that required delicate artwork by hand. The French created the simple symbols that we use today. The sim very simple diamonds, spades, all those. It's very simple. A, a little kid can draw a diamond, um, maybe not a club or a spade, but a diamond and a heart. Kid can draw that, no problem. Um, little elementary school kid. If you taught them, they can do the spade and, and the clubs as well. With that kind of simplistic, simplistic uh, design for symbols for suits, cards became even more common in the uh, peasant class. And I got another quote here from playing cards, or what is it? playingdeckcards.com, whatever. It's in the blog. Production was a hundred times more quickly than you, 
than using the traditional techniques of wood cutting and engraving with improved processing processes in manufacturing paper and the development of other better printing processes, including Gutenberg's printing press, 1440. The slower and more costly traditional woodcut techniques previously done by hand were replaced with a much more efficient production. For sheer practical reasons, the Germans lost their earlier dominance in the playing card market as the French decks and their suits spread all over Europe, giving us the designs as we know them today. So that the, when the French made it the most efficient, even more than the Germans, believe it or not, <laughs> That's when we get the, the suits that we have today. A historically intriguing aspect that the French added to playing cards um, was that they attributed face cards like the Kings, Queen, Jack, and Joker of each suit to actual historical figures. Well, not Jokers. Those come in later, uh, a couple hundred years later, but the King, the Queen, and the Jack. King David was the King of Spades, Alexander the Great, the King of Clubs, Charlemagne, the King of Hearts, and Julius Caesar, the King of Diamonds. They each represented the four empires that the French really, the ancient empires, the Jews, the Greeks, the Franks, and the Romans, Franks being the French. For queens, they had the Greek goddess Pallas Athena for spades, Judith for hearts, Jacob's wife Rachel for diamonds, and Arjane for clubs. And for jacks, they used, um, that they, they, they then called knaves. They had Lahir for hearts, Charlemagne's knight, Ogier for spades, Hector the hero of Troy for diamonds, and King Arthur's knight Lancelot for clubs. So each one of those represents and represents specific people, and they have their own stories behind them. Next time you pick up a deck of cards, take a look at the face cards. They don't all look the same. They have slight differences. One of the biggest is the King of Hearts. Look at him. Most decks have him with a sword going into his head. People thought that was a suicide king. No, it's Charlemagne. They think they actually made him look like that because the sword's behind his head and he's using it to like he's about to strike it down. Not an actual suicide king, but the legend and myth says it does. So that's pretty cool. Each card has their own story. If I went over them, this podcast would be crazy long, but look it up. If you're wondering what the Queen of Hearts is, one of my favorite country songs is playing with the Queen of Hearts. Da, 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 da. No, it ain't, ain't really smart. Da, 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 da. Joker ain't the only fool who do anything for you. All these, all these different face cards, they all have different stories behind them. They have uh, songs inspired by them. Uh, I think it's, is it Motor- I'm going to get in a lot of trouble if I mess this up. I think it's Motorhead that does the Ace of Spades, the Ace of Spades. And we'll get into that one a little bit differently. But almost every card, except for the boring numbers, have different stories behind them. And I love that, that the, the, the um, you know, Alexander the Great is the King of Clubs and, and Charlemagne the King of Hearts. It's so cool. And, you know, Lancelot is the, the jack of clubs, but you didn't know that. Now, once cards move make their way to England, things get even a little bit more intricate and different. Taxes started to soar in France, so card printers moved to Belgium, where decks of cards uh, found another renaissance. They can make them a lot more in Belgium, and then they could move all over the place. Where France was taxing too hard, couldn't go very far. The Belgian printers spread cards all over Europe, and most notably to England. England was the first to call the French... Uh, to call the French Cur, Pique, Caro, and Trefles, the uh, English version heart, spades, diamonds, and clubs. If you know a little French, you will notice that Pique actually is pikes and Trefles is clovers, not clubs. So, you know, a little bit different there. Um, they don't translate to spades and clubs. For some unknown reason, the English 
took spades and clubs from the Italians instead of the French. They mixed it up there. That's why when you look at the 52 deck of cards, it represents so many different countries um, because <laughs> the modern one has so many different attributes to it. You can't say, oh, they came out of this country from this time. You know, I love it. I love things that, that bring all these different countries together. One of my favorite episodes that I've ever done was Hawaiian pizza. Whether you love it or hate it, Hawaiian pizza is the thing that unites this world. And so does a deck of cards, kind of, which is why I'm fascinated by them. And another quote from the uh, PlayingCardDecks.com as they explain the English unique contribution. It is also to the English that we owe the place of honor given to the Ace of Spades, which has its roots in taxation laws. The English government passed an act that cards could not leave the fal or factory until they had proof that the required tax on playing cards had been paid. This initially involved the hand stamping the Ace of Spades, probably because it was at the top of the deck. Uh, but to prevent tax evasion in 1828, it was decided that from now on, the Ace of Spades had to be purchased from the commissioners of the stamp duties and that it had to be specially printed along with the manufacturer's name and the amount of duty paid. So whereas card printers would make the entire deck, they could not make the Ace of Spades in their factory. It had to be made by the commissioner for stamp duties. <laughs> As a result, the Ace of Spades tended to have elaborate designs along with the manufacturer's name. Only in 1862 were approved manufacturers finally allowed to print their own Ace of Spades, but the fate of the signature Ace of Spades had been decided and the practice of an ornate Ace with the manufacturer's name was often contributed. As a result, to, to, to this day, it is the one card in the deck that typically gets special treatment and elaborate designs. So the Ace of Spades, the Motorheads are I'm going to keep messing it up. I love the metal song. I can't remember the band, but the song Ace of Spades metal. The reason why Ace of Spades was used so often in like Vietnam, World War II, Ace of Spades has a lot of story behind it. All comes from tax. <laughs> the English going, hey, you can't make cards without us taxing it. And the way to prove that goes all the way back to 1828. So pretty cool. Love that. Um, and there's more to it. We'll get into the fun facts about the Ace of Spades and the World War II stuff. Um, but yeah, I love that's the origin of it. I didn't know that until I looked into the this episode. So I wanted to quote that whole paragraph. I thought it was great. Now the cards moved to America. Now what did the Americans contribute? Not too much. Since uh, the very first colonizers of Americas, they have been cards on the New World. There's even evidence that Native Americans were introduced to card playing and were like, hmm, cool, we will do this our own way. They made their own decks with original uh, suit symbols and designed once the introduction of playing cards became popular amongst the uh, native population. So there is evidence of that. I thought that was cool. I didn't know that. So I want to include that in today's episode. One final innovation that we owe to the United States is the addition of the Jokers. The Joker was initially referred to as the best bower, which is termed which is terminology that originates in the popular trick-taking game of Euchre. If you've ever played Euchre, it's really fun. I played in uh, my fraternity. Don't remember how to play it now, but I know it was fun. I would love to do it again. Uh, it was a popular in the mid-19th century and refers to the highest trump card. It is an innovation from around 1860, 1860 the uh, designated a trump card that beat both the otherwise highest ranking right bower and left bower. The word euchre may even be an early ancestor of the word joker. A variation of poker uh, around 1875 is the first recorded instance of the joker being used as a wild card. In short, Americans added the joker and also made cards in an even faster and efficient way than Europe did eventually. So there's the history of cards, how we have it today, all the way up to the Joker, the Americans, we added that in there. 
So I thought that was cool, but we're not done. I have some fun facts. Um, the first cards were made with ivory tiles. Ivory tiles, wood, marble, and other surfaces were used to make cards back in the day before paper became the standard medium of card globally. And today, when you see cards, it's actually two pieces of paper glued together, not just one piece of paper, usually. Ace of Spades was painted on soldiers' helmets to bring them good luck in World War II. You um, would most probably have seen the Ace of Spades over the helmets of soldiers in movies. In the Second World War, this was done because the Ace of Spades was known to bring good luck among the soldiers. It is believed that the mere presence of the painted helmet would help them fight fiercely. Cards were used in a means of important information in the 18th century. The most heart-wrenching example can be given of the deadly hunger period during the 18th century. Women who could not take care of their little ones would leave them out in the streets with notes written over cards, hoping people would take pity on them. That's pretty dark, but good slice of history to know about, I guess. At casino, cards are changed every now and then to make no make sure nobody cheats. Casinos have to take precautionary measures to ensure that cards don't become marked during play. They also need to ensure that cheaters don't pull any extra cards out of their sleeves and corrupt the game. Also, once every year, or <laughs> once every hour, used cards are changed with a new deck. So that's a lot of cards that they go through. And that's why I think when people go back through arche or archaeological you know, digs hundreds of years from now, they're going to find cards because they're not just paper anymore. They're like laminated. They're going to last forever. People are going to find a buttload of cards. Um, and that's one thing I do think about today, not just cards, but we leave so much behind and our, we have so much stuff that people are going to be able to piece together our lives quite a lot. And I think it's funny. They're going to find so many cards and be like, wow, they maybe they they'll think we worship these cards or something. I don't know. Playing some card games can increase problem solving skills and immunity. This is one of my favorite fun facts I learned about this. Playing guard games uh, could potentially enhance cognitive functions. It could improve one's ability to think critically. More so, playing card games like Bridge can help increase immunity. From the And I looked a little bit more into this one because this has a personal... Um, personal ideas. My, my grandmother, my nan, she plays bridge all the time. She's like me. She loves playing games, game, game, game. If you're at a social event, can we play a game? Can we play? She loves playing anything that, that she still is physically able to play. Um, she said she doesn't want to do horseshoes, throw her shoulder out, but she also, she, she's like, I don't know if I can do, um, what's that game? Cornhole. She said it might hurt my arm. I said, you could do it underhand. It's super easy. She likes playing cornhole. She's really good at it. But from the wellsbridgeunion.org, uh, this was this was show, shown in a study under undertaken by Professor Marion Diamond from Berkeley University in 2000. Playing a game of bridge requires you to concentrate. This helps keeps your brain active and apparently helps boost your immune system. For the study, Professor Diamond used a group of 12 women in their 70s and 80s. So not the biggest uh, source of, of material there, but it makes sense. Playing games keeps your mind a lot sharper than if you just sit around doing nothing. And finally, my favorite fact, 52 cards in a deck symbol. Oh, no, before we get. Uh, yeah, I must have written this wrong. This is not the final fun fact. 52 cards in a deck symbolize 52 weeks in a year. And here now we are, my final favorite fact about cards, the thing that makes them so cool and I think timeless. There are roughly 800 quadrillion times more ways to shuffle a deck of cards than there are atoms that make up the earth. No one has or likely ever will hold the same exact arrangement of 52 cards as you did during that game that you would play. It seems unbelievable, but there are somewhere in the range of eight 
to the power of 10, 8 times 10 to the power of 67 ways to sort a deck of cards. That's 8 followed by 67 zeros. And I have a couple images here. There's like 1.3 times 10 to the power of 50, you know, very generally speaking, amount of atoms that make up the earth. 1.3 times 10 to the power of 50, whereas there's 8 times 10 to the power of 67 ways to shuffle a deck of cards. And I'm... (laughs) I could read you the whole number. I got a picture of 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 that number splayed out. It's like eight zero six five eight one seven five one seven zero nine four three eight seven eight five seven one six. It's huge. If you ever shuffle a deck of cards properly, which there are you know different ways you can do it. There's images on a proper shuffling of cards, or just watch any casino dealer do it, or buy a card shuffler like my in, my father in law gave me. When you shuffle that deck of cards, you've done something that has never been done before, most likely, and never will be done ever again that same way. And you think about that. How many times a deck of cards is shuffled in a, in a casino every day? There's, you know, 10, about roughly 10,000 official casinos on the globe. Each one has an army of dealers. Each one goes through a new deck every hour. They're shuffling it how many times, you know, once every like five minutes, probably less than five minutes. That many times it's been shuffled, doesn't matter. Every single time they do it, math says it's almost virtually every time they do it, it's in, the deck of cards has never been shuffled that way before. Blows your mind. It's real. I've told some of my buddies are into math before and they're like, there's no way. Nope, that's that's accurate. That's the way it goes. So anyway. That's cards, the history of cards, the uh, unfathomable, you know, complexity of cards, how many times you can shuffle them, and my three recommendation segments. Thanks for listening, Huda Thunkers. Until next week. (laughs) 